Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, it's a big day. It's our 50th episode. Uh, thank you for listening and watching. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Gideon. That, yeah, that's incredible applause. The packed, yeah. packed audience went crazy. <laughs> no, but it, it, is a, it is a big episode today because we, first of all, look at the wreckage left behind by the High Court in its decision yesterday to create an entirely new category of Australian. Uh, we also look at the collapse of George Columbaris's chain of restaurants and what that means for the industry and unions and everything else. Uh, and we also unpack the first faltering steps towards legalising digital currency that were taken at Davos. Uh, don't forget, Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join, donate or just generally get around our research. Uh, today, our closing books and culture segment has some uh, great works of freedom. Uh, we're going to be looking at a book by Milton Friedman and also a collection of classic works by Wilhelm Ropke. Uh, having butchered that German, I'll leave Kurt to clean up the mess. Uh, also, the addictive soap opera Succession, which everyone seems to be, except me, seems to be talking about, and a long essay by David Brooks in The Atlantic on the collapse of the nuclear family. But it is time now to introduce our panellists. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Introducing, first of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Happy 50th. Uh, yes, happy 50th. Uh, <laughs> it's just our golden... It's our golden anniversary. I had to Google that. Oh, cute. there you go. Um, it's, it uh, is cute. Josh, do we have a cake? <laughs> uh, no, we'll do that later. Uh, also, Kurt Wallace, uh, research fellow and our ambassador of Austrian economics at the IPA. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. And uh, Gideon Rosner, Director of Policy, good to have you here as we pick... You are actually a lawyer, aren't you? Uh, oh, in many <laughs> moons ago in a past life. Yeah. I think that leaves you Technically. Quali well qualified to talk about the High Court judgment. <laughs> you, you did you did articles, though, didn't you? Uh, uh, yeah, no, I practiced for three years, yeah. yeah um, it, didn't, was, it was my personal Vietnam. I'm glad to get out of it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I did, I did do my time. PTSD. <laughs> uh, tell us about the High Court, Chris. Absolutely. So the High Court ruling actually was released yesterday in Love v. Australia, which also brought in uh, Tom's v. Australia. The story is this. Um, so there were two uh, men who've been facing deportation under the Australian Migration Act's character tests. They both committed separate violent assaults. They'd both been born over, or they both were born overseas. Uh, one of them was born in New Zealand and one of them was born in Papua New Guinea. But they've lived their, most of their lives in Australia and yet had not obtained Australian citizenship, yet they also had both of them Australian Indigenous descent. So the High Court um, uh, was asked to make a ruling on whether they could be deported. And the High Court has determined that um, under the Australian Constitution, uh, people with Aboriginal Australian descent cannot be considered aliens under the constitution. So the idea is that if they are, if they have indigenous heritage, regardless of whether they are Australian citizens or not, they um, somehow belong to the country and the constitution, or at least the High Court, has decided to um, uh, to recognise them as belonging to Australia. And I think there's there's a lot to talk about here, um, and I, I use that word belonging quite carefully because that's the word they use. But, but Gideon, why don't I throw first just for your take on um, this, I think, rather extraordinary decision? Yeah. Uh, yesterday we, via press release written by the very esteemed Morgan Begg, called this the most 
radical act of judicial activism in the history of the Commonwealth, and I think that is absolutely correct. This is not only is it radical, not only is it extreme, not only is it out of whack with what the community would expect out of Australian citizenship and sovereignty and so on, but it's actually an extreme. The, the supporting judgments are actually extremely wacky and poorly written. They seem to invoke what you could almost call voodoo jurisprudence. And I'll, <laughs> I'll take this whopper of a sentence by uh, Justice Nettle. Uh, Cases such as Singh authority appear to imply that a person be, can be classified as an alien where he or she was born abroad or is a foreign citizen. But intuitively, that conclusion appears to be at odds with the growing recognition of average, the growing recognition of Aboriginal peoples as the original inhabitants of Australia and the ubiquity of Australian dual citizens. It is therefore necessary to stop and inquire, uh, stop and inquire, and applying the received technique to re-examine the essentials of alienage and the nature of an Aboriginal person's relationship of the Australian polity to ascertain whether in truth upon the correct analysis of the situation. Now, those quotes are all from a couple of speeches by Owen Dixon. They're actually not from any judges or any authorities. Owen Dixon was a great judge, but I, it's not exactly the most direct authority you could use in case law. Later on, he throws in... Uh, so which, which judge is this? Just, uh, just Nettle. Nettle. Later on, he throws in bits of international law, going back to the theories about the conquistadors, back when Spain was invaded back in the day. Uh, so really, I mean, and this joke's been made a hundred times on Twitter and all sorts of other places, but it really is a case of Dennis Denudo from the castle. You know, it's Marbo, it's Owen Dixon, it's international law, it's the vibe, man, it's just the vibe. That so, is the um, the... And I guess I should go back a step and explain where... <laughs> What, what the legal basis of this decision is. Can, we, can, can, I, can I just mm. – uh, one more scene setter before yeah. we, we, we dive further into the judgment and we've all um, – uh, this is the first draft of history here because yeah. we, we, we did our best to to read it um, last night. In I like to think that every episode is a history-making episode. A history ma we, are, we are actually <laughs> defining the narrative. Especially the 50th episode. Um, <laughs> the very first judgment is that of the um, Chief Justice um, uh, Kiefel um, – Correct, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Um, and it's admirably clear and yes. uh, you can follow it, you, you know, unlike this sort of tour de force that you, that you get to later. So it was a, it was a, uh, Kiefel uh, was joined by two other judges in arguing um, not to change the law and to affirm the power of parliament uh, and, and, and thus the minister to exclude um, non-citizens from Australia to send them back to where they came from, as we've been doing in the thousands in, in recent years. And um, she went out of her way, it's worth a read, to say this is super important. Mm. This, this is, um, it is, in the absence of a relevant constitutional prohibition or exception, express or implied, it is not a proper function of a court to limit the method of exercise of legislative power. Mm. It, was, it was very, very pointed towards her... Um, fellow judges to say, don't mess with this, guys. Do not press the red button. Mm. Uh, but four of them decided to press the red button. Uh, the other thing about Kiefel's judgment, which was a brilliant judgment, I mean, I admit it's been a few years of since I've read a judgment, but Kiefel was, as she pointed out, the importance of it, but also the absurdity of the case that the plaintiffs in this case were trying to make. So to, to go way back, so the Constitution, as we all know, in Section 51 gives the Commonwealth power Parliament certain powers, one of which is naturalisation and aliens, right? Aliens being non-citizens, foreigners, you know, call them what you will. Um, the argument that was put was that because Mabo established a body of law which recognises traditional Aboriginal uh, law and practice, uh, 
as a mean and and gives the Commonwealth or uh, means uh, dictates the Commonwealth effectively gives effect to some of those uh, or give, gives property rights on the basis of those laws and customs. Um, that. Indigenous people somehow fit outside the Commonwealth's remit, that they can't be considered aliens, and therefore the Commonwealth cannot make laws that concerning aliens which relate to Indigenous people because, by definition, they are somehow infused... They, with they the, belong... Oh, well, they well, they can't be considered yeah. aliens. And, so and it that's the bizarre thing, And that's the bizarre thing that the, the High Court has lent into that. Yeah. Because the High Court often makes um, uh, decisions that step well outside precedent. Mm. Um, for example, um, the right to political communication. and yeah. one, But once it makes that decision, it really holds back. So mm. it'll pull back and it, it, it um, declines to extend it or even elaborate too much further, possibly because they're concerned if they elaborate too much further, um, then, you know, the, the idea of constitutionalism seems to um, fall apart. But what they've done here is that they've taken the most general claim that they could pull out of high court jurisprudence, particularly around Mabo, and then said, not, not that this is a general principle, but it applies to this particular circumstances mm. of two people who do not have Australian citizenship, but can make a claim to Indigenous or indigeneity Australian, that they're um, uh, Aboriginal Australians. And it's that jump from that general statement, which is which is an interesting philosophical statement and, and does inform um, uh, a, a lot of the way we think about native title, to, okay, well, in fact, that means that two people who are obviously not Australian citizens have some sort of right to Australian citizen. But we should ask, Kurt, um, uh, where, uh, uh, how, how you felt when you first heard this. Yeah, how does, how does this going <laughs> to play? As, as an economist. As, as someone, yeah, well... Well, as, as a normal person who was probably going about their daily life unaware that the High Court was about, was about on, to totally up in the Constitution. Speak on behalf of normal human Australians. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. As opposed to us abnormal Australians. I think um, it's interesting because it comes in the context of a broader debate around uh, recognition and constitutional change um, because this is the sort of thing that um, people on the you know, conservative side have been arguing as a reason why we don't want to um, insert more um, race into the constitution because you'll have um, you know give the the high court powers to uh, distinguish between divide australians by race and distinguish between um, categories of of people based uh, entirely on race and and this just seems quite absurd to to have two categories here we have um, citizens or three categories now so citizens aliens and then this third category um, of people based entirely on race. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out uh, in, in public opinion because um, I think that, you know, I don't think this, this decision mm. really passes the pub test. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you make a very good point because there's been a debate about removing, uh, led by the IPA, I might say, uh, about removing the race power from the, the Constitution as incompatible with... Uh, a society based on the principle that uh, everybody uh, should be treated equally under the law. Um, but that that's almost fallen away now because they have said, we've created this category. And, and again, the minority judges, the three of them, um, uh, I can't remember which one, but they made this point that you, if you do this, you are introducing race into the foundation of Australian law, quite apart from whatever the, the, the specific... Provision in the Constitution says so. We can remove that now, but we'll still have race. One of the things that really struck me about this judgment was was to Kurt's point that there's a, a third category, mm. um, and what Justice Edelman does, and Justice Edelman seems to be the strongest 
um, uh, in the majority, so the strongest supporting um, uh, the majority opinion. He, Thanks, uh, he comes Porter. up uh, the, the <laughs> most expansive. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a sec. He, <laughs> he, he comes up with this idea of a belonger. So mm. there are citizens, and there are aliens, and then there are belongers, which are this category of people who are Aboriginal Australians but not Australian citizens, so have some some collection of the rights due citizenship. Um, now that is, as I understand, that is a imported term from a very specific other constitutional context. So mm. the idea of belonger comes from British overseas territories Correct. usually mm. um, to deal with some really complicated things about the territory, the fact that these territories, their citizenship rules are determined by the British legislature, not their local legislatures, and that Britain, once it's gotten all these colonies, doesn't want the actual inhabitants of those colonies mm. to have British citizenship. So, you know. But they, do, not, they do want to acknowledge that they, they are yeah. um, so, uh, belong to that territory that it, the British had conquered. It's, yeah. it's, it's a fundamentally colonial concept. So mm, it, it, yeah. it comes because of the legal complexities of um, dominating another people, if you will. Um, now, the High Court seems to have just imported... Uh, my reading of the um, judgment seems that the High Court's just randomly imported that as a general concept, not with any clear precedent or not with any basis on the particular context in what in what it means in British overseas territories it's just said okay there's now a new thing called belonger you are a belonger and um and the basis of justice settlement seems to be if you've you are a belonger if you have this I'm going to quote something because I found this really strikingly uh, this sentence striking I think I'm pretty sure it's in Edelman's um uh thing. So he says, since settlement, Aboriginal people have been inseparably tied to the land of Australia generally, and thus to the political community of Australia with metaphysical bonds <laughs> that are far stronger than those forged by the happenstance of birth on Australian land or the nationality of parentage. That might be true, but it is not for the High Court to decide any the metaphysical law, basis. How can any court yeah. of law rule on metaphysics? No, well, well this, 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 I mean, that is, that is <laughs> like, that is one you, level you below ask, the VAR. You, that, you, that ask, is, you ask how. Yeah, no, this, 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 is, this is poetry, not, not <laughs> High Court judgment. And um, well, so, Some and, might argue that the best judgments are poetry. And it comes poetry. back to this, and I wish um, our resident uh, expert on, um, on the nation's state in uh, uh, Andrew Bushnell was here because he, he then goes on to say a political... This is Edelman again. Um, thank you, Christian Porter. A political com community is not a thing that exists in space. It is a metaphysical construct that describes a group of people who belong to a defined place or territory, here the land of the Australian state and who are to be regulated as such belongers. So we, we live in... <laughs> The nation state and Australia uh, in our British tradition, this is this is um, uh, a Lockean state, or you know, or it, it's a it's a a people that have come together as a as a political community. Um, Bushy would argue the political community comes first, and then the constitution. If you're more social contract, it's the other way around. But in any event, we we're defined by that that consent of the people. Edelman's completely ignored that tradition and made up this stuff to say that it's about belonging to this place. But then, and then, this is the killer though, having said that being in a political community is about belonging to this place, this continent, this nation that we love, Australia, he's then said, but you, none of us here, absent Indigenous heritage, which I don't think any of us are claiming, none of us belong to it quite as much as this new category of people that we have just created. No, and, we and can never belong to it as much as they do. These are fine opinions for people to have. 
mm. and if the Australian in the Parliament common, common rooms of wants to make yeah, this yeah. claim or the Australian people through a referendum want to make this claim about metaphysical bonds, that's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be wrapped in it and I might um, argue against it, but they can. It's not the High Court's role to make decisions about metaphysical bonds between certain people and the land. Well said. It's also worth pointing out that this is actually a betrayal of Mabo. It is not the continuation of Mabo. It is not a, 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 a progression of it. You know, Mabo, and again, this is sort of a very finicky legal concept, but Mabo recognised that pre-existing interests uh, as expressed through traditional practice and, and uh, customs and so on were recognisable by, by the common law as giving effect to some proprietary interest that the sovereign had not yet extinguished but could extinguish. This is totally different. This is about creating a... a this is about recognising a parallel system of, of law, if you will, that sits outside the Australian... The system of Australian sovereignty, and the other thing about it is, as Susan Kiefel correctly pointed out in her brilliant judgment, uh, dissenting judgment, sadly, this is applying Mabo to a native title to a completely different area of law. Native title was about property rights; it was not about migration rights. We should probably very quickly just talk about the political consequences of this, mm. because it, the High Court, of well, course, is a neutral arbiter of uh, only facts, but there are going to be. Um, uh, uh, this comes, as Kurt's pointed out, in the middle of a debate about recognition and the middle of a debate about the voice. Um, Gideon, um, what do you think is the political significance of this and how does this change the next couple of years of discussion? Well, well as or, usual, or when, I, when I want to know what the pundits are thinking, I go to Twitter, uh, which I spend way too long <laughs> on. Uh, so I checked it you're yesterday. Very funny, and, man. I thought and, you were going to say the Yorkshire Stingo in the, uh, Hoddle Street. Oh, that, that's the... Uh, no, he, did, that's, he couldn't get there last in, night. In Hoddle Street, Abbotsford, that, that's not the best place for a reflective pub test. But uh, anyway, that notwithstanding, no, I jumped on uh, Twitter, as I often do, um, and you know, after we'd been talking and we'd been responding to this, talking about how bizarre it was, outlandish, crazy and everything else. The biggest complaint of the Twitter sphere, they were up in arms. Do you know why? Because it was a 4-3 decision. They said, how can three <laughs> judges want to deport Indigenous people? They, you know, we say that the Twitter is not real life, but this was completely upside down. As to what the political uh, fallout of it will be, what can the, what can the parliament do? This is, this is a, a matter of constitutional interpretation. This is the final... There's no but way to appeal to the, the, the Parliament can't do no. anything about this particular case, but doesn't it? Well, I mean, my well, view is so that it changes it, quite materially it the debate about, about recognition, well, doesn't it? It, it, what, sorry? It, it, it materially changes the debate about recognition. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so pro can, does it? Sorry, yeah, well, Ken, what, Ken what, uh, specifically, I thought uh, Ken White was going down a road towards something that sounded very much like a preamble. Yeah. Um, we're back to a preamble uh, such as we saw in, what was it, 96? Uh, the idea that we would recognise the prior occupation of this uh, continent prior to European settlement. Um, and uh, the activists who uh, promoted this had, had said, had gone out of their way to say, and, but we'll make this preamble uh, non-justiciable. It mm -hmm. won't create new rights. And, and we might even write in a clause to say that the High Court is not allowed to consider this statement. But the High Court has just demonstrated that they would find a way around that. The High Court doesn't care. We don't the High the Court doesn't care. And this goes well, to... Yeah, well, conversely, <laughs> they've already done it, so what does it matter? And, um, and look, we've been, you know, saying thank you, Christian Porter, et cetera, et cetera, and that's, you know, this Edelman bloke 
doesn't sound like the best legal mind. So Ed- Ed- Edelman was appointed by Chris, by Chris Porter. Well, right? he, he, at the well, age of what? Tw- uh, well, he's stunningly bright. He's uh, clearly stunningly bright. Yeah, okay, he's, sure. He's, incredib- but he's incredibly correct. As a black letter <laughs> lawyer who will safeguard and protect the Constitution, he obviously Not comes so up much. wanting. But um, it also bears going into that three out of four judges in the majority in this instance were coalition appointees. And that doesn't necessarily say anything about the coalition, although I guess it does, particularly people like, I guess, George Brandis and, and uh, who may have slotted in some uh, judges that aren't the most, as I said, black-letter conservative lawyers, but it also talks to the kind of people that our law schools are producing. This is the culture in the legal profession, a profession, sadly, as I said, that I spent several years in the belly of the beast of, and I practice commercial law, let alone what they're doing down at the refugee human rights centres and all sorts of other things. But there is a culture permeating law schools of the fetishization of people like Michael Kirby and uh, the 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 um, glorification of judicial activism. This idea that you are not a, a judge to interpret, uh, or you did not become a lawyer to interpret or to protect or to arbitrate the law, but you you become a lawyer to make change. Because the problem, partly also, is that law is such a boring profession. Lawyers get bored. They need to feel like, you know, in between. Um, churning out ASIC forms and finding ways to create absurdly complex tax minimisation structures, they are actually doing something that reflects their social justice instincts. And sadly, that means coming up with crazy judgments like this. Yeah. And when the, law, you... the law should be an administration profession, that's my view. Yeah, and I, I, might, I might just say a uh, uh, final comment on it. Uh, if you do get a chance to read it, please do. And to Gideon's point, the textual, textual analysis that you do, what distinguishes the minority from the majority judgments is the minority judgments are mainly referring to case law and previous decisions of the mm. High Court. You know, God forbid they're actually relying on precedent. You go to particularly Nettle and Edelman, and this is the new world of the High Court, which is, they quote, speeches yep. by an Owen Dixon outside of the High Court. So um, uh, not, uh, what do you call it? O- it's Obita. It's not even Obita because <laughs> it wasn't even in the, co- in the court. They, they quote professors of international law. Yep. They quote journal articles. Correct. Uh, uh, one of the one of the footnotes I saw was from a journal of post-colonial history. Yep. Uh, this is where the belonger stuff comes in. So you range outside um, uh, what once would have been called the actual law um, to to this realm of normative law, and and you get and you find it where you can. And um, this is this is postmodernism. We're, un- we're in uncharted territory. This is postmodernism and deconstructionism, you know, worming its way into the highest court in the land. This is actually, I mean, that's the most frightening element of this. Anyway, right. So Speaking of we do? Going some, <laughs> speaking of going somewhere where we ain't never been before, uh, we're about to enter a new world of digital currencies, I believe. That's right. So um, uh, on indulgence, I thought it would be fun to talk about um, uh, something that I've been watching with my colleagues at RMIT for quite some time. Um, in January, the Davos um, uh, elite convention will put it that way, where they bring a lot of central bankers and bureaucrats and politicians and corporate types um, together uh, for a big confab to talk about the future and all that sort of thing. Um, they made it very clear that we're entering a new age of money. And this new age of money has some really powerful and important political consequences that we should, um, and the Australian government should be thinking about um, carefully. So um, at Davos, they were really focusing on this idea of central bank digital currencies. Um, and the um, simultaneously at the same time, corporate currencies like Libra. So um, uh, the Facebook-led Libra consortium that's building out its own corporate digital 
currency um, kind of on a blockchain, kind of a cryptocurrency. And of course, in the background, you've got cryptocurrencies there. The story behind all this, so this is all technical and interesting. And if you're interested in monetary policy and you're interested in you know the nature of the financial sector, that's all you know kind of interesting and all that sort of thing. But um, it has really significant geopolitical consequences mm. um, because so much of this is driven by a um, dispute, not a dispute, but a, um, a, a competition between, on the one hand, the corporate world, so um, Facebook and, um, uh, and, and its partners running out this corporate currency, and on the other hand, China's central bank digital currency, which it is rushing into production at the same time, and as we... Uh, Sinclair Davis and Jason Potts and I argued in the Australian Financial Review is actually a really powerful anti-dollar hegemony um, uh, uh, technique or um, political mechanism where the idea is that the Chinese central government would have control over the financial system, not just of China, but of um, other countries that it might sort of pressure through Belt and Road to adopt the um, the, the yuan and the uh, that is the remibi. Um, I thought I'd first throw to you, though, Kurt, because you've been following a lot of this for quite some time. Uh, w what's your take on this on this new battle between um, uh, multiple currencies? Well, I think there's a the number of things at play here, and I think the the, the key issue is that um, you know the cryptos came in um, into the world with the what I think that they're great. Um, just just for my, my, my benefit, what's the difference between a crypto and a corporate other than who's backing it? Is it different technologically? Is it uh, so it, it can be different technologically. Um, uh, there, there, is a, there is a difference at the margin, but it, um, it can blur. But the way I think about it is that there are sort of public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So mm. any of us can use Bitcoin. Any of us can... Um, uh, host a node, which is basically um, uh, host the Bitcoin network on our own computer. With no, we don't have to ask anyone for permission. Right. Um, a corporate digital currency. Most of the um, uh, models, and certainly the model that Libra is going to be using, is um, only a number of corporations, like hundred corporations or hundred um, corporations and universities or something like that, can host the network. We can all buy and sell goods with that Libra currency, mm. but only a couple of companies or a large number of companies can be hosts. So they're not open in the same way. Right, so it's, it's like, a, like the difference between open source software and... Precisely, right, and, okay. they, and they've got really strong... Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of excited about corporate currencies. I'm more excited about cryptocurrencies, but I'm excited about the potential for corporate currencies to bring currency competition. Mm. But um, uh, uh, they... they they are distinct. Sorry. Um, Sorry, Kurt. We'll go back yeah. to Kurt. So, so what I think the, the two great features of something like um, of Bitcoin and cryptos based on blockchain is that they have privacy and also a decentralized approach mm. to, to the money. So, you know, there's no one entity that's controlling, um, you know, has the ability to print the money because I think it was Rothbard who said that, you know, the great law is that if someone an entity has the ability to print money, they will. Like, <laughs> yes, it's just a, um, a truism. So, I think those are the two great um, you know ideals of, of Bitcoin. And I think these other things, like with the the corporate coins and, and clearly like the central bank uh, uh, move into digital currency, uh, completely undermine those those two benefits. So, um, I think that the huge battle. Uh, at the moment is really over the control of, of money and the, the central banks around the world do not want to lose that control. 
Um, and because that's you know the basis of of using monetary policy uh, to 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 meddle in the economy um, mm. to affect their that that's their whole um, uh, reason for existing is that they control the the money supply. So I think that's a key part of this. And it's if they lose that ability um, to whether it be to um, you know, other countries or to um, to to corporate coins, I think that's that's you know. It's game over for them. So that's yeah. a key reason for, for, for that. But the other uh, thing that's concerning about um, some of the developments here is China's um, role in all this because they have extreme um, uh, market power in some of these things with, uh, say, like WeChat payments and things like that. If they can get control of, of the way that people, like billions of people, uh, Transact, then you know that undermines completely uh, privacy concerns. Yeah, it become obviously become a tool of surveillance. Exactly. So it has yeah. you know you're being surveilled by the CCP, for example. That's yeah. that's not a, an outcome that anyone wants. But at the moment, they have um, extreme um, abilities to do that because of uh, the nature of their political setup. So um, I, I, can I just ask you something, Chris? And by the way, I, you know, whenever I have to know about monetary policy, I get Kurt to explain it to me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to contribute anything. I just want to ask a few dumb questions. But one thing that, is, that, that, stood that out, is a contribution. Don't, right, oh, okay. don't, don't be down on yourself. Right, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You always make me feel so good about, uh, about myself and my intellectual prowess, Chris. But um, one – and congratulations on the, on the piece. It was a very good article. But one thing that stood out is, is you said that the Australian government is trying to create its own digital currency. Now, that to me is horrifying because, as we all know, <laughs> what will happen is firstly ASIO will want to see who's using the currency, <laughs> then the AFP will want it, then the ATO will want it. And, uh, well, you know, then it becomes a matter of, well, if your GP sees that you've spent too much money on Big Macs or something, you're going to become entitled to a Medicare benefit or some goddamn thing. I mean... What are, the, what, yeah. what are the possibilities for this? So, so that's right. Um, uh, and the RBA has been a bit cagey about um, its investigations into digital currency. It's not – it's experimenting with. It's not so necessarily it's like their building – like project. <laughs> yeah, b b sort of. Uh, so it's, it's – they're experimenting with it. They're not building it out. Mm. Um, uh, and to my mind, that is a big part of the story. And, and Kurt mentioned the privacy thing. Um, we've got to look at this – in the context of a simultaneous um, digitization of the economy, and 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 don't doubt that the ATO can track any digital payment you make mm. and knows what money goes into your bank and what money doesn't, uh, or, and and where it goes afterwards. So that they've got incredibly powerful surveillance tools already. Um, so to that extent, it's not a huge jump. Mm. It um, it might make some efficiency gains. It might make some surveillance, um, open up some new surveillance opportunities. But by and large, for a country like Australia, a central bank digital currency, if we get one um, in the near, near term, is not going to be a huge change. What is, however, simultaneously happening, and I know, Kurt, again, you've been looking at this too, is um, the government and a lot of governments around the world have also been saying, well, now we've got to start getting rid of cash mm. because unlike digital currency, unlike um, fully um, central bank digital currencies or just the digitization of um, economic exchange, um, we don't know what you do with the money that you have in your wallet and we can't track each individual dollar as it um, passes from merchant to merchant or you know, is, is spent on drugs or assassinations or whatever they think that we're spending our money on. Um, so the Australian government has decided that it wants to ban the $10,000 cash transactions as well. Um, and Kurt, there's been a, a big backlash about that in the last week or two, um, particularly from in the coalition. 
Yeah, there has been. And there's been um, quite a, uh, a wide public uh, backlash about this. Um, there's been, I've seen drummed up a lot on Twitter um, and a lot of the, the punters out there are, are quite concerned about this. Um, you know, people are very attached to um, using cash and, you know, they see that this is being threatened. And I think that it comes at an interesting time where um, the central banks are talking about negative interest rates, um, which if that flowed through to your to your bank account, um, you know, instead of your earning interest on your account, you'd actually be charged to hold your money in the bank. And so this is part of a, a scheme, a broader scheme to um, to get people to spend in some sort of a stimulus approach to say, okay, I need to spend money because it's it's eroding in my bank account. Yeah, um, which is which is insane. And so many of these people who argue for these negative interest rates, just like uh, you ask them, well, but won't people just take money out of the bank? So they say like, oh no, we should ban, uh, ban cash then. That's the, but, uh, th- that's the fundamental solution. Oh, well, we'll ban cash. I think it's You'll quite, have to put it in the bank. It's quite funny that the RBA has actually come out and denied the conspiracy, which uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that they've, they've been driven that far to actually have to come out and deny it. But I mean, it's a huge coincidence that at the same time we're talking about negative interest rates and the big problem of negative interest rates is that people... People don't like to the, pay negative interest rates. Well, we've drawn from the banking system and at the same time we're pushing forward with well, the, uh, removing the, that ability. Yeah, they've got yeah, nothing and, to do and, with and each other. I mean, the other, the other how, how dare you make such yeah. claims? Uh, uh, this, I don't... Please, either of you, jump in here. But the other, the other thing I'd like to disentangle from the RBA's point of view is one of the criticisms of these digital currencies is that, uh, that that is advanced by the central bankers is that a proliferation of digital currencies might lead to some kind of um, macroeconomic instability. And I'm sort of thinking like, yeah, because you guys did such a good job of that. <laughs> <laughs> How much worse could it possibly be? <laughs> is that the a thing? W- yeah, look, so the way I think about this is, is we are coming into um, historically uncharted territory. If you think about it this way, the um, in 1911, the Australian... Central Bank, the Commonwealth Bank at the time, took over the note issue in Australia. And ever since then, for more than 100 years, we have had one single Australian currency that um, the Australian public uses for all its transactions by law. By law, um, some small uh, currency traders held some foreign exchange, but by and large, we all used Australian dollars. What do you mean by law? Uh, so, so um, it, technically by tax. So right. the um, uh, Australian government taxed private issuance of currency and okay. made it un- uneconomical. Um, uh, Is that still on the books today? That's a great question. Thank yeah. you for asking, Gideon. <laughs> You'll take um, it on notice. <laughs> I'll take it on notice. Can we find um, some... I'm not precisely sure exactly what yeah. the legal situation is. But anyway, there's an Australian dollar. Now, or at least ever since the invention of Bitcoin, and now there'll be Libra, and there'll be all these central bank digital currencies, and the proliferation of cryptocurrencies, we can effortlessly hold dozens and dozens of different currencies. And as things like Libra get adopted, um, as Uh, cryptocurrencies like bitcoin their adoption increases then we're going to suddenly see ourselves in a world of massive currency competition this is the sort of stuff that frederick hayek was um hypothesizing about (laughs) in um his denationalization of money what free bankers have argued a a niche community in a already niche community of free marketeers have argued about for for decades and decades it's on us now and so when we see these three categories of new digital currency this is the the significance of that from a from the perspective of the global financial system the global economic system is really hard to underestimate and and the parallel we drew in the 
op-ed was all the changes that happened with the Bretton Woods mm. Conference in 1944, the way that changed the economic system, all the changes that happened when um, uh, Richard Nixon uh, abandoned Bretton Woods. We're doing that again. Super exciting. So what do you think the, you know, casting your mind ahead 10 years to when this has really come into vogue, uh, cryptocurrencies and corporate currencies and so on, what do you think the response from the Australian government will be? Will they try to ban it? Will they tax it? Will they... Look, um, are they gonna, it'll be the same old thing. It'll be the RBA uh, protecting its own interests. Yeah, so um, there's a number of c countries that have actually quite aggressively tried to push away. Um, in fact, my favourite is the Bank of France. Mm -hmm. The Bank of France chief said, uh, declared um, uh, last month that currency cannot be private. Money is a public good of sovereignty. And they've warned that Libra is not welcome in Europe and that sort of thing. Um, in fact, uh, it's actually our job um, to answer that question. The Australian mm. government has given us a Australian Research Council grant to look into the ways yeah. that the Australian government should respond to, um, uh, to, to cryptocurrencies and whatnot. So uh, it depends on how well I do my job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, it is <laughs> the answer to that question. Yeah, we'll, ne we'll never get any criticism. <laughs> the future of, the of currency competition is in your hands. It is, so. it is. And so. we'll never get any criticism of the ARC out of... No. <laughs> No, no. Never said no. a bad word they, about those they, ASC grants. They always pick great projects, I've always said. Now, speaking, speaking of industries that always prefer to deal in cash, uh, we turn to the hospitality industry, and uh, uh, everyone thinks this is about George Columbaris, um, but he is the public face of the, uh, the MAID group. He's a 20% shareholder, and it has gone into liquidation. The uh, former MasterChef's star and uh, 400 employees... Uh, out of work. Uh, some of them uh, may uh, continue if the liquidator is able to uh, establish any of the uh, the business units of that restaurant, uh, that series of restaurants, as viable entities in coming days. But otherwise, it's uh, curtains for that. And uh, Chris, what does all this mean? So, keen um, listeners will remember that we discussed um, the uh, ruling that Fair Work made, or the enforceable undertaking it imposed on. Um, uh, George Kalambaris made establishment restaurant group in July. Of course, George Kalambaris is, was, the owner of the press club, um, Hellenic Republic and Jimmy Grant's uh, 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 famous Australian um, celebrity chef and, um, and, and Melbourne icon. Apparently he's um, now thinking of returning uh, or, or leaving and moving to Greece after this. Hmm. Um, uh, anyway, so he um, was found to have paid underpaid $7.8 million in wages and superannuation to 500 of his employees. He'd failed to pay minimum rates of pay, casual loadings, various things like that, penalty rates, all this sort of stuff. And um, he has now become the icon of the union's campaign against what they describe as wage theft. Um, Gideon, I'll ask you first, what do you think we've learnt out of the um, Callum Beerus episode? <sighs> to be brutally honest, I think we've learnt something that I knew already, which is we can't have nice things in this country. <laughs> uh, we can't have. And, and, and that's a, a serious point. I mean, I think when, when I was on that original discussion you had, and you drew a very important distinction, which I'd never thought of before. There are two kinds of wage theft, to use that terribly loaded term. If you agree with somebody to pay them a certain amount and you cheat them out of that agreed amount, that is obviously wrong and we need to call that out. However... And that is outright theft. That is outright uh, theft. Uh, yeah. You know, no, no, no bones about it. If you reach an agreement with somebody who wants to be a barista or a chef or a waiter or whatever else and 
you can't afford to pay them whatever the award is, which I'll get to in a second, uh, and that you agree to pay them under the table a certain amount. That is, it may be illegal, but I don't think it's it's necessarily immoral. It is a is a voluntary exchange between two people. Now, I looked into the topic of wage theft a little while ago, and I wrote I did some research on it, which I never got around to publishing. But underpayment is extremely prevalent in the food and hospitality sector. Um, According to the Fair Work Ombudsman, almost 50% of the sector underpays, right? According to New Unions New South Wales, they did a bit of research on... Underpays against the minimum wage. Against the minimum to, wage. To, I mean, against yeah, the minimum wage, yep. not against what, it, what was agreed, because yep. We, yep. It's, Which it would be hard to determine yep. statistics on that. But New, New Unions New South Wales found that 90%, 97% of hospitality job ads online on Facebook and websites and things like that had offered wages below the award. And... Um, and I looked at a bit, uh, other industries where underpayment is common, and the data suggests that there are three common attributes among sectors that overpay. Number one is that they have lower than average profitability, so they run on tighter margins, which makes obvious sense. Secondly, uh, a higher than average number of workers employed in small business, that is businesses that don't have the economies of scale to do lucrative EBAs with, uh, and sweetheart deals with unions. And thirdly, and following on from that, as I said, a greater than average reliance on awards. So this is a problem with the award system. Now, people are dancing on George Columbaris's grave and say, oh, it's fantastic, we got him, blah, 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 celebrating the fact that 200 people are now out of work, fantastic, well done, uh, trade union movement. But also, uh, but, but if these cha- cl- hipsters clapping their tongue over this think that their favourite cafe or dumpling joint in inner-city Melbourne is not doing exactly the same thing, they have rocks in their head. You cannot have a plate of dumplings for $8 and pay the bloke bringing it to you $35 an hour on weekends. It makes absolutely no economic sense. And when they start chucking people in jail for wage theft because they want to make it a criminal offence, well, that you will see the death of the hospitality industry in this country. God help us all when Deliveroo, for example, has to pay a $35 delivery fee uh, because it is un sustainable to 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 have the, the the business model that is as as uh allowed the system to survive up until now so uh look at you know things are going to get really really bad and i think it's very sad for the country kurt how much do you pay for your dumplings well i definitely <laughs> uh, won't be uh, buying dumplings if i have to pay <laughs> 50 dollars a plate five dollar um, delivery fee but i think um it's important to to look at the broader context here is like in 2019 um you know there's a number of um, big corporates that were um, had issues with underpaying. That includes Qantas, Woolworths, uh, the super retail group that has Rebel Sport, cheap, super cheap auto, um, the Commonwealth Bank, Michael Hill, Bunnings, and Woolworths. And let's not forget the uh, the ABC. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's interesting. Uh, every time we see an article about uh, underpaying, it's always you know wage theft, wage theft. But the ABC is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake. It's a, it's a, no, it's um, a mistake. It's underpaying, which of course it is. Of course it is. It's, you know, ABC. It's not their money. What do they care? Well, exactly. They're, they're not, um, they're not um, deliberately trying to, to underpay. It really speaks to the complexity of, of our of industrial uh, system. Um, and these are the big pl- players who have, you know, the, plenty of resources to deal with these things and to work out um, the different awards and uh, in the interaction with um, penalty rates and all these things and to do the right thing. And as, as Gideon was talking about, what who this is really affecting is, is the small guys, the small businesses mm. who don't have the resources to, to, to look at these complexities. They don't, frankly, have the time to, to go through these things. They're trying to run a business uh, instead of, um, you know, looking at all the interactions of the, of the complex system. 
The other issue is that, um, and I've heard p people say this, that you know they contact uh, Fair Work, and depending on who they get, they get conflicting information on <laughs> what yeah. they're supposed to do. And this is, that is right? to, yeah. to very basic things like. Um, uh, you know, the Australia Day holiday that fell on Sunday, is that, uh, do we pay uh, public holiday rates or, you know, where, where's the mm. public holiday? Like mm. very basic things like that and you have conflicting advice. So yes. um, it's actually uh, impossible for, for many uh, business owners to actually to comply with this thing. So I think that's, you know, yeah. really where the debate around this should go is, I think to push back a little bit, I think that if you're going to have minimum wages and an award system, you need to enforce it. Yeah. And, and, and well, yeah. I, I disagree with uh, having of the award system, but if you're going to have it, you can't allow um, some people who are more willing to, to you know, go into grey areas to, mm. to take advantage of that. Mm. But the, what we should be concentrating on is having a clear system um, where it's easy to comply with Everything's uh, can easily be above board, um, and people can um, comply without um, fear of being dragged before fair work. And Absolutely. to clarify, I'm not condoning breaking the law, but what I am saying is that if you do, if you don't, you you, you won't yep. be able to yeah, open up it's a shop. The, it's a combination. Yeah. It's the combination of the system that we have, and there's plenty of research out of the US, by the way, where they can track the effect of minimum wages on on restaurant closures. And mm. I think a, do, a dollar of a minimum wage increase is like a That's ten right. percent increase in um, in the exit rates out of the industry. I just wanted to say, by the way, putting on my uh, IPA corporate hat, that um, uh, as a lot of this relates You'll to... You'll have to take off the headphones first. <laughs> there you go. Um, but then I wouldn't be able to hear you so clearly, Chris. Um, <laughs> no George Columbaris has been... Uh, Charles Peer pointed this out in the uh, the great magazine Spectator Australia yesterday that uh, the unions have had it in for Columbaris for nearly 10 years now, ever since he first called out mm. the pernicious effect of um, penalty rates uh, in the hospitality industry and um, uh, put a big target on his back, I think was the expression. And um, uh, so George was under attack 10 years ago. And uh, who was it that backed him? In a, media, in, in a story that I found online, it says, Institute of Public Affairs Work Reform Director John Lloyd said, Mr Shorten and the union should be listening to the Calumbaris's concerns, Mr Calumbaris's concerns because he joined a growing list of restaurant owners warning penalty rates could force restaurant closures and job losses. So the great John Lloyd, um, uh, former uh, public service commissioner and, and many other senior appointments was calling this out a long time ago that this is unsustainable. The hospitality in industry is in dire straits. The only ones left will be the, the corporates. I mean, nobody's got any damn money anyway because mm. they're too busy just trying to scratch out their power bills and the childcare fees and, <laughs> yeah. and, um, uh, and try and buy a house and every other, every other thing. So there's a, there's a massive squeeze going on here and um, it was only that Calumbaris had made himself a target and could be the public face of the maid group and um, Innes Wilcox um, uh, from the employee groups has, has been very, very uh, unusually strong on this I'd mm. say, uh, pointing all this out and the union's defence is, oh well it was nothing to do with us, he got what he deserved, it was only because uh, there was a customer boycott. Well, who, who whipped up the frenzy? <laughs> who actually whipped up the <laughs> frenzy? And, and he's not even, I mean he's a 20% director. He wasn't even the majority. Yeah. Oh, sorry, he wasn't even a director of this thing, but it was a convenient target for the unions to go after. The him. other side effect of all this, which bears going into, and this is ironically something the unions do talk about a lot, which is the ex exploitation of migrant workers. The workaround for a lot of restaurants, in particular, is 
over reliance on oh, well, there's a, you know reliance on four five sevens, and there are people who, and things like that, and there are people who debate that. But in particular, international students are great people to have working under the table because typically they exceed the maximum number of hours they're permitted to work. So if they blab, you can counter blab on them and send them and, home. Yeah. And as a result, they are put in situations which are unsafe. Which they are overworked. They are, they are paid you know genuinely low rates of pay. I mean, this is the we have created this black market in human labour. One of the other so so that's one downstream consequence. Another downstream consequence is that the labour market is actually responding mm. to this high minimum wage, um, and I can't help but see a close relationship between high and complex um, industrial relations laws and the gig economy. Mm. So a lot of people drop out of full time employment or drop out of single um, uh, company employment and move into gig economy type employment because in the gig economy. Um, uh, minimum wages, all that sort of stuff does not apply. Mm. Um, now, a lot of people enjoy driving for Uber. A lot of people don't enjoy driving for Uber but do it anyway. But um, uh, regardless, what they've done is they've made a decision to actually go into effectively self-employment, self-employment aided by technological change that um, uh, allows them to uh, get jobs where they may not have been able to get jobs mm and avoid um, some of the really high constraints of the industrial relations system. Yeah, and uh, it's, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people around Australia voting with their feet, essentially, in, in the gig economy, making, making those choices. And, um, and that's, not, that's not always desirable because um, a lot of those people might want more stable employment. They mm. might want to um, have an employer who makes a lot of the uh, accounting decisions and all that sort of thought for them. But because of our industrial relations system, that has, they, many people have been excluded from that decision. Mm. Yeah, because so, pe people complain about, um, oh, you know, these Uber drivers are making less than the minimum wage. But th what the, the actual problem is, is that there is no, um, at that pay rate around the minimum wage or just below it, there's no legal employment um, structure for them to be employed. And so there's no competition, mm. So which actually puts uh, downward pressure on the rates that Uber drivers get because, um, you know, these people who, if they're out of work and they're um, around that pay rate, uh, forced to go into to self-employment instead yeah. of uh, being employed, which uh, has it's it's it's, a, it's not a good result for anybody no, um, by closing down the competition. I feel like all of the topics we've covered today, all three of them, uh, not just the the High Court, but the um, the outworking of what's happening with our industrial relations system and digital currencies are all issues that we will revisit in future episodes. They're weighty so issues. I think they, we've done weighty issues. They're they're weighty and developing out issues. actually, this, this program. Well, <laughs> then digital what... Digital currency I'm excited for. Thank but you for then, joining us on our 50th anniversary. Then what we should do is start, <laughs> is move to our books and culture segment and just start yeah. talking about... Well, let's start with let's the talk frothy one. Things. I've been watching television. Yeah, stuff. let's talk about television. I've been We're watching... the only thing to do in this country when the unions close down all the rest. <laughs> American and the bars. Oh God, the bars. Oh, okay. All right. So I've been watching. So uh, when you get home from the bar, um, uh, Gideon, you should put on <laughs> Secession, uh, which is a black comedy about a um, media mogul and his children, um, and obviously they're thinking yeah. about secession planning. It's um, it's not quite meant to be Rupert Murdoch, but it's pretty close. Mm. Um, it's not the biggest company um, in the world, but it, or biggest media company in the world, but it's like the fourth biggest media company in the world. Um, uh, there's obviously a, um, it, the whole thing is about jostling for who's gonna be the, the successor, the successor. 
um, uh, and when the old man is going to step down. Um, uh, it's it's actually so you watch it and over time you realize that it's one of the funniest shows you've ever seen, but it reads like a drama. Um, uh, and uh, it's a soap opera. It's sort of soap opera format, very high quality um, uh, golden age of television style um, drama, but it is just really, really good. As Scott was saying, everybody says that they're obsessed with this. Um, I am now obsessed with this because everybody told me that they should watch it. I think the key thing to know is, and I only realised this after I started watching it, is it's been written and produced by one of the funny, the person in charge of the funniest stuff on television in the last two decades. The guy's name is, Je- guy's name is Jesse Armstrong. He's the writer of Veep. The Thick of It, Peep Show, and In the Loop. So if you like any of those, um, all of them, almost all of them are political dramas, easily the best political dramas and political comedies done in the last two decades, and then Peep Show, which is just an amazing show. Um, uh, If you like any of them, but you want it to be even darker and even angrier and look more like a drama, um, you you should watch Secession. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. It's a comedy. It's uh, not obviously a comedy, but once you realise it's a comedy, it'll become your favourite show it's, on on television at the moment. Anyway, starts to open up. Great. Now, you, Gideon, you've been looking at a classic work. Yeah. So, um, and this is really a, almost embarrassing to come on this show, as this is what you're reading at the moment. I mean, uh, especially for the director of Pulse at the IPA. But yeah, uh, Milton Friedman, Capitalism and Freedom, classic. <laughs> I have quoted from it. I've cited it. I've sent around memes about it and everything else, but I've never read the bloody thing. So finally, after 32 years, I'm sitting down and reading it. Uh, unsurprisingly, it is engrossing. It jumps off the page. It is extremely relevant still to the debates we are having in the year 2020. But interestingly enough, I'm not that far in just yet, but I the chapter I read last night was the chapter of, very relevantly, the control of money. And it, it was interesting to see... Friedman's take, you know, decades and decades and decades ago before any of the technology that we've been talking about today was even contemplated and he uh, argues against, well, against the two polar extremes of what was then monetary policy. Uh, The one end you had the gold standard, which for various and somewhat obvious reasons became unworkable and so on, um, at least in a pure form, and on the other was the central banking, reserve banking and he, and he you know, illustrated how the bad decisions of the Federal Reserve in the US not only exacerbated but in a lot of ways caused the Great Depression. Uh, and his, um, Friedman's solution is for rather than giving uh, – money of laws, not money of men. Rather than giving yeah. uh, a small cadre of central bankers control over the money supply, he – suggests prescribing some sort of flat rule, which is predictable, understood, and everything else. He settles on the rule of increasing the money supply by 3 to 5% a year for reasons that Kurt, I'm sure, will be able to explain to me. But interestingly enough, this is the juncture we find ourselves at now. We find ourselves, uh, you know, there's the competition element, but also the fact that Bitcoin and, and these currencies are extremely uh, extremely predictable and, and, and reliable in how they internally govern themselves. That's what the the blockchain technology has enabled. So we are seeing Friedman's conception of monetary policy come alive now in in, in the 21st century. It's very interesting. It is super interesting. Um, And Friedman was writing at a time where the alternative to the gold standard, as many people saw it, was just unfettered central bank discretion. Mm. Um, and, uh, And I'm not critical of Friedman's analysis um, because 
the idea of having fixed rules in any currency is is the right choice. Mm. Um, now, m my view is that um, mine, mine, like Kurtz, would be much more Austrian and obviously currency competition is the goal. But fundamentally, if you're going to have a central bank um, and working within the political system that certainly he experienced when he was writing um, these arguments in the 60s and the 80s, um, you better have it fixed. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. The, what's cool and exciting, one of the exciting things about these um, cryptocurrencies and potentially corporate currencies is that they fix the inflation rate. Um, in fact, we know precisely mm. when the um, the we know precisely how much Bitcoin is going to be released into the wild. Is that because it relies on people mining it? Or? No, no. So it's um, it's built into the protocol itself. Is that right? So every ten minutes, it will uh, on average every ten minutes on average it will release a certain amount of Bitcoin to a successful miner. Really? Um, and we know precisely when huh. that amount is going to change as well. In fact, it's going to. Um, what's called the halvening is going to happen in May where it goes from 12.5 to 6.75 or whatever it is. Um, uh, so so what's, what we've moved into is this um, uh, environment where these currencies are really fixed. Now, it's also a really important thing right now because the RBA cannot hit its inflation targets. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, uh, can it, Kurt? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's completely incapable of doing its, its only job. Mm. Just before... Um, the other thing about Friedman, good on you for reading Friedman. I mean, what a what a great popularizer of, of capitalism he mm. was, and we shouldn't underestimate when he wrote uh, that book uh, so early early sixties and his monetary policy work. You know, he he was an outlier. He was a complete outlier, um, if and he, he wouldn't he, be by today's standards too. I, I mean, that, that you know, it was so uh, Keynesian that he was just seen as a lunatic. Um, you know, monetarism was 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 called voodoo economics. Um, and not just by the left. Um, and George H.W. Uh, Bush eventually. Yeah, exactly. The, the Austrians didn't like it um, either because it didn't fit their model. Uh, he stuck to his guns. His, his, his reading of the Great Depression was radical, uh, then got popularised by um, Amity Schley's uh, in Forgotten Man uh, and is now much, much more accepted that FDR made the recession worse. And, and um, yeah, bugger, uh, of course, George Bush Sr. lost to Ronald Reagan, who actually believed it and implemented it, um, created uh, uh, that squeeze uh, with Greenspan in the early 80s. Uh, everyone around him was panicking and Reagan said, no, we have to do it. If not us, who? If not now, when? They did it. And by the time he got to the, the 84 election, it was morning in America. Mm. So... God damn it! Everything Friedman said they should do, they did, and it worked. And um, and so no wonder that um, he's revered mm. as a as a hero of uh, of freedom and capitalism. But there are others in that liberal tradition, Kurt. Yeah. So um, I've been reading. Um, You're getting better and better at this. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, 20th century economist, um, William Brodke. Uh, this is uh, a reader called the Humane Economist, which is a play on. Uh, one of his famous works, The Humane Economy. Um, so um, Ropchi was uh, a, a student of, of Mises and sort of that Austrian school, but he sort of um, moved away uh, and sort of furthered in, in a different direction. Um, he's also uh, quite influential on Ludwig Erhard, who was the mm. uh, economics uh, minister in Germany after World War II, uh, who was instrumental in the, the German economic miracle mm. where all the advice was coming in from, um, 
from the West to, you know, to have tight controls on, on prices and uh, have a, a fixed economy. Uh, and he just overnight said, nah, we're... <laughs> no, uh, but great just, man. D- just announced that, no, uh, that the prices are... We're ending the price controls. Um, everyone panicked, but um, it turned out to, to lead to one of the great uh, economic booms. Mm. Um, so, so that's an interesting uh, background on Ropey. But I think some of the interesting things that... Um, that Robke talks about and one of these great themes is really looking at um, the market and the role that um, the, the prerequisites for the market play. So these would be like the moral, ethical foundations of, of the market economy, uh, which is really uh, a broader thing. So he talks about uh, a lot of the errors of just, um, just economism, just looking at markets uh, and ignoring the broader social framework in which markets actually work. Um, and to this, he sort of he has two main um, uh, things that he attacks, and one of those is what he calls the social rationalists, who think that we can separate um, the institutional framework of which markets have historically flourished, uh, and just use the markets in a certain way, which um, destroys the unity between these two things. Um, and so you see that in the folly of trying to put markets in context where there is no respect for uh, the rule of law or for um, for uh, the, an ethical system uh, as we have uh, in, in the West inf- influenced by Christianity. Um, another key um, theme in, in Roki is, is the role of Christianity in this, uh, this broader uh, social edifice, uh, edifice that um, really backs up the market. Um, and one of the, the interesting things is, is when, we t- when he talks about communism, uh, and this is uh, before... Uh, you know, the, the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. And he talks about how we can't uh, fight communism with just the materialistic um, approach of saying, um, you know, markets lead to, to better material living standards, which of course is true, and he acknowledges that that is the case. But he, he says that we need to actually argue that our ethical and moral principles are superior to, to the communists. And I think that that's an interesting sort of foresight as um, a lot of people in the in the early 90s were very hopeful that um, hmm. we'd, we'd destroyed communism because we'd once and for all proved that um, the West um, you know, had far greater living standards than, than the Soviet Union. But I think one of the interesting things where communism is sort of coming back is I think that we've failed to actually instill in the, in, in the public this idea of our moral values um, and to have meaning, and I think this will sort of tie into to Scott's pick a little bit, um, where now people who are, you know, are, are sort of grasping for, for meaning and they, they, they've turned back to communism, which we thought we had had beaten, but I think Roepke's insight uh, really speaks to uh, the issues here. It's, re- it's really a battle between two value systems as opposed to just dry, uh, narrow economic considerations. So that's right, and it, rem- it reminds me of um, Deidre McCloskey's argument about um, the virtues and ethical systems underlying liberalism, that um, it's not that the um, liberal values get you just richer economies, although that's super important, but it's also just a better virtue system. It's a more respectful virtue system. It's a virtue system that um, allows people to flourish in whatever domains they choose. And one of the things I think um, it might be a difference with McClowski is that he talks about that these prerequisites must be furnished from outside the market. 
Um, so there's a little bit of scepticism that the market will generate the virtues necessary to, to keep the system going. And I think that that's, that's a pretty interesting uh, insight there that, um, you know, that he, he sort of speaks in a way that a lot of uh, free marketers, uh, you know, haven't um, in, in ways of the, the dangers of a, a purely um, market system detached from uh, the broader moral Yeah, it means that you have to system. pay some attention to the institutions of society as well and, and um, uh, you need the market must drive economic exchange but it doesn't mean that you can leave society to the market. The yeah, market. exactly, yeah, and that, that's one of his so key things. Uh, so. is, is this, I mean, this sounds to me dangerously close to the sort of national conservatism that's coming into vogue. Is it... Mm. That, I mean, the rejection of the the market, or at least the the reconsideration of uh, the, the, I mean, hearing the Tucker Carlson's of the world. I don't know. I, the, I, 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 I see this a lot more. I, I see this a lot more in the. I mean, Adam Smith, and it, the the book that Adam Smith is most famous for is the. Wealth of Nations, but the theory of moral sentiments is the book that underlines mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the 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 philosophical structure of the Wealth of Nations, and that's that's about the way we relate to each other outside mm. a market context, and that's arguably what um, Smith was more interested in. So those moral presuppositions, uh, presuppositions that allow us right, then. Okay to act in an economy. We are people first and economic agents second. Um, uh, economics doesn't always um, focus on the first, but it needs to. And and and, and I think that's what McCloskey and obviously Ropke are actually uh, uh, urging us to do. The, right, okay. we, we, we have to have a holistic view about about the structures of the yeah, market. And, and you're right to an extent, maybe not national conservatism, but um, I think... Uh, probably it supported that German tradition of auto-liberalism, the belief that it was that, yes, the state did need to actually have some um, some key institutions. To, like to, what, the courts? Uh, uh, oh, things like, say they would have, they supported uh, competition law, um, right, okay. you know, to, to regulate, in the, uh, in, in the shame. belief yeah. that, shame, <laughs> I know, but <laughs> not, not hearing anything. Uh, but the connection is essentially that, that freedom had to be, um, to, in order to preserve freedom, it was necessary to create some institutions which would give it some legitimacy uh, to a wider yeah. uh, constituency. And and it's I think the modern equivalent would be what Tyler Cowen's calling uh, state capacity libertarianism. Um, and probably this this might have horrified Ropke to have gone to that extent. I, I don't think Ropke is in any way that sort of national conservative. But no, I, think, I think I'm projecting. But the Fry, the Freiburg School, the Germans, I think do. Do uh, in a way that uh, you know a, a hardcore libertarian would not admit that the need there isn't a role for the state in some of the institutions in order to preserve yeah. the capitalist system. And, that, and that's the ger- say, that, that is that German tradition of auto liberalism they call it. Yeah. What I will yeah. say is that I have noticed over the last couple of decades or so the co-option of economics and the market by the left to as a sort of Trojan horse for their own. Oh, yeah. How many times have you heard... Ah, renewable energy, bozo, blah, 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 it's a market It's system, a market blah, mechanism, blah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. or, or some, some bozo on the 730 report saying if we just taxed uh, you know, alcohol a little bit more, then you can see the, the market will sort out the... Uh, bring down health costs and so on. I mean, it is... Nudge, nudge, nudge. It, it is a, a bastardisation. I think that actually goes to the fact that, ironically... The cultural left tend to be the materialist ones. They, there's no problem yeah. that can't be solved by flinging uh, some more money at it. I, I think it was tactical. They realised they'd lost the argument on central planning, so they said, oh, "Okay, it's about markets then, and we'll centrally <laughs> plan the markets." Yeah, yeah okay, they don't, they, don't, they don't actually believe in them. That's <laughs> yeah. right. They, they just use them as a tactic to beat conservatives over the head. 
and we let them. So I am going to close with um, uh, a very, very fresh essay from the March 2020 edition of the Atlantic Monthly, which I must say is actually is not bad. Um, it's it's not as uh, I mean the Atlantic the magazine or the yeah essay. the magazine. <laughs> I, I think it's not as not as crazy as uh, they've things got, like they've the got new a number of really good writers there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so David Brooks, who his day job is he's the um, the tame conservative for the New York Times. Um, uh, author of some great books, um, but he is he is a conservative. And what he's looking at here, he's got the provocative title: "The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake," and the subtitle is <laughs> cool. "The Family." <laughs> not for the reasons you, you think. Does that speak to you, Gideon? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I think, in the sense of not not in contradistinction to uh, Lone Ranger, but in fact to its um, wider ties of kinship and supportive networks. Um, I think is is what he's contrasting with. He said, um, the subtitle is, the family structure we've held up as a cultural idea for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many. It is time to figure out better ways to live together. And so I'm not, this is uh, not necessarily endorsing all of this, but he certainly put his spotlight on a lot of social issues. Uh, they're like, uh, as always in America, they're at their most extreme in America, but they're not unfamiliar to us here in Australia. And what he's saying is that as we, uh, as we modernised, as we created a modern market economy, it was all about people coming away from their ties to traditional society, coming out of their, their household production units off their farms, um, dad teaching the, the boys how to, um, to, to work the carpentry tools or mum teaching the daughters how to sew. And um, We moved into factories and the, the family unit that adapted to enable that was the nuclear family. And for a while there, essentially, he's saying is, this worked pretty well. Um, the nuclear family thrived. Um, we had affordable housing. Um, cost of living was reducing all the time. Um, and it was enabled also by the fact that um, uh, the sex, uh, gender division of labour with women looking after the household met the, you know, the family unit, got the attention that it needed. Now, and I'm adumbrating a, a long essay, but he's essentially saying that model of the success of the nuclear family is now something only rich people can achieve. Mm. Um, that uh, marriage rates um, are still high amongst uh, the, the most educated and the most wealthy. Everywhere else it's a story of um, uh, the collapse of, of the nuclear family, children being raised uh, without, particularly without father figures in their households with all the social pathologies that's created. Um, he's, as I say, he's conservative, but but not a uh, necessarily a darling of the conservative movement because he is bipartisan in his criticisms. He's saying the conservative movement in America believes in believes in the family correctly, uh, but then essentially just looks down on the lower classes, which are unable to maintain stable family units. Brooks wants to understand why that is the case. Um, and, it, and the left, of course, the progressives are still celebrating, you know, just pushing uh, individualism to its extreme. Um, uh, reminds me of those conservatives who, who conflate liberalism and libertinism. Um, he's saying they have a point, you know, the, the progressives just see this as an unalloyed good that you have ripped yourself away from these traditional moorings. And what he is, is harking back to is the age of extended families, of, of, of grandparents, of uncles, of aunties, of big households. 
um, like you still sometimes see in ethnic communities or uh, or neighbourhood communities, the kids that are sort of, you know, the the he wouldn't have said neighbours, but I do, but, you know, the idea that the kids are in and out of, you know, the different parents' houses in the cul-de-sac. And so, for instance, he... Uh, we all note the stat of uh, children moving, uh, staying longer in their parents' households, um, and it's like, isn't this a disaster? Brooks is like, it's well, like, yeah, great. <laughs> is like, is that a disaster? Is it? Is it actually really that um, different generations are, are cohabiting this house and 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 living their lives and in the workforce and and perhaps even starting families? You know, grandma and grandpa come back. What's wrong with that? Um, so it's it's a really provocative. Essay, I th- I think it's like it? bowling alone for families. Is that the something like that? And 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 it's 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 it does adopt you know the critique of neoliberalism that um, you know by the, the atomization of the individual and the destruction of the family has been an outgrowth of capitalism. I don't I don't let, agree let, with let that. Me, let me let me let me make one one argument in the defence of the nuclear family, insofar as or or the ideal of it is that those extended family networks for many people can also be very suffocating as well and they prevent um and and you see this in a lot of um uh, particularly migrant communities they can be suffocating that prevent people from actually being able to pursue their own lives um you see this in um, a lot of traditional societies as well um and it does hold back really significant living standard increase so I, i i i take and i look forward to reading the essay but um i i i take that critique as as quite significant but you've also always got to compare it to well what were push people pushing away from in the first place uh, look uh, uh, yeah conversations like this and this is something we talk about around the water cool in this place all the time um the nature of the family firstly i'd, I'd reject <laughs> yeah and, I, and I'd, I'd look i'd s- sympathetic and you know, i love my family very much but in my observation chris you're and right yet. i think families are, families are like airbags <laughs> they, they believe in marriage they save um <laughs> big, oh, yeah, big, big supporter well, of marriage well, I, oh, I say us rosens we believe in marriage uh you know very much my fa- father had three of them my mother's on her second so we're big believers <laughs> in the institution of marriage um look uh, firstly, I reject the idea that the left has pushed, and we hear this again from the national conservative types, not that I'm accusing you of that particularly noxious ideology, but um, we do hear this, well, we've pushed liber- individual to its extreme, the left have pushed individualism at all costs. No, the left haven't pushed individualism, they hate individualism, they have pushed um, collectivism. Uh, alienation from family in favour of the collective and also in favour of the state. They're the ones who are tele- who are using schools as a mechanism for social engineering, not genuine education. Um, but secondly, uh, this idea of the collapsing family and everything else, I mean, the nature of the family is changing and nobody can afford to be, have a family on one income anymore. Who the hell can afford that? But for reasons I don't particularly understand a lot of the time, people are still on their own and in the absence of government encouragement, getting married, having kids, scrimping and saving to buy a criminally expensive house in the suburbs, uh, paying through the nose for school fees because our uh, public schools fill their heads with garbage. I mean, it's not easy to achieve a nuclear family. It certainly isn't, but people are doing it. The problem is, and this is part of the reason I've delayed or indeed may not end up getting married and having kids because I can't afford a mortgage and school fees either without compromising my lifestyle. Who wants to do that? The problem is that we have made it unaffordable, as you said, for, uh, for working people to achieve... Really, what is uh, something that is, is 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 an extension of human nature and a very natural hmm. way of being? I think there's a there's a broader uh, a changes that I think uh, Brooks uh, outlines, and I think draws on a, um, a 
a, a theme in a lot of conservative thought, um, which is that the idea, and I think that the left has in, has pushed individualism. And I think that on the margin, no, 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 just to clear that point, they've pushed individualism so far as if you think that you're, you know, aquagender or whatever it is, then you know that's your individualism. Well, that's radi- that's, that's radical individualism. Sure, but yeah. that's around the margins. But in terms of where you can work, where you can live. Uh, how much of your own money you get to keep? How much you can drink? How much you can smoke? How much um, uh, the 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 what? How you deal with your employees and how you deal with your business and your private property? All those things are vested in the state. So it is it is a, a furphy, I think. As you were saying, sorry, sorry, it's sort of a uh, paradoxically uh, as this push towards this this form of individualism. Um, it's actually just resulted in people being completely atomized and completely naked before the state. Oh, so that's the true. only institutions, in, like the only you have individuals and the state. And this mm. is what you're talking about is really the state being involved in all of these uh, intermediary institutions that have completely uh, lost their function in society. And I think that one of the, the issues for the family is that um, the as well as the family being attacked by the state, is that the state has attacked all of these intermediary institutions like the the neighbourhood communities and mm. uh, you know sporting clubs um, and all these things. Absolutely. Um, that the family now has to the nuclear family has to take on uh, a role which it never um, had. Like has a certain um, people are expecting to get things from the family mm. that they would have got from a broader community, but also. Um, it's it's becoming increasingly the case that the family just doesn't do the things that it used to do. So, um, you know, a hundred years ago, um, people, you know, economics and everything was very tied to the family. Um, yes. We had uh, a lot more small business, a lot more uh, mm. family business, where people were dependent on each other economically. Um, you had education being more in the home. You had um, Age care being taken care of by uh, people in the home, you, you'd look after your, um, you know, your parents instead of um, having that taken care of by other institutions, um, state institutions. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a number, and these things sort of fostered um, the relationships and, and the strength of the of the family. Uh, and I think that it's, I think it is a concerning trend where we're moving towards the family just becoming um, what some people have called just like a. a a loading dock where you, you go home at night and recharge and... and uh, oh, like the Borg, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's... The people you watch television with. The yeah, yeah, and I, that, that conception of family, I think, is is really... Um, it is a complete degradation of what, mm, of what family no, should be. Yeah, no, they're... Um, religion were points. That, that, that's Particularly about civil society as well, which is a big piece missing here. Yeah, so I think the like state all these things out. are sort of interacting mm. to, to create... And, and I think it's the right time to have a reckoning and, and there will be policy consequences from this as well, although that's not what's driving Brooks, but, but it is worth thinking about in policy terms. Uh, you have been listening to Looking Forward, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you want to find out more, go to ipa.org.au. You can look at our other great podcasts, our great research. All sorts of terrific videos are described there. You can read Morgan Begg's terrific media release on the disgraceful High Court decision from yesterday, or the disgraceful High Court majority decision, I should say, um, and lots of other good stuff as well. A big thank you to our panels today, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Kurt Wallace. Thank you. Gideon Rosner. Thank you. And also our wonderful producer, Josh Stranger. Yeah. Uh, we'll be, I'm Scott Hargraves, and we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. Yeah.